Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Agriculture Department's Food and Nutrition Service helps millions of Americans of all ages and from every walk of life every year. It operates several programs to help people of all ages with something kind of essential. My next guest knows the inner workings of these numerous programs as well as anyone. Now she's the recipient of a Presidential Rank Award. The Food and Nutrition Service Assistant Administrator, Tamika Owens, joins me now. Dr. Owens, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. And I guess it's maybe not too simple to say that your mission, your agency's mission, is feeding people. Fair way to put it? That is absolutely fair. Tell us more. I mean, tell us what's involved day to day. I think the SNAP program might be the most famous and the biggest of the programs, but it's just one of, what, about a half a dozen? Actually... Um, thanks to Congress, we now have 16 nutrition assistance programs, and you're right, SNAP is probably the most well-known, but we also are responsible for the National School Lunch Pro- Program, the School Breakfast Program. There's this program called the Women, Infants, and Children Program. Um, we have summer programs. During emergencies, we operate DSNAP, but we also have other emergency feeding programs that provide commodities throughout the year when there's not an emergency. And these these programs, especially SNAP, have really undergone a lot of modernization in terms of the way they're delivered over the years, haven't they? Absolutely. During the pandemic, um, we had to quickly scale um, the way we provided our services. So we quickly modernized, if you will, um, in ways that allowed our participants to take advantage of online shopping using their SNAP benefits, which was not something that we had previously explored. There were pilots, but nothing full scale. But thanks to the pandemic, we've quickly scaled that up. But even with our school lunch and summer programs, those have also undergone modernization. And currently WIC is also undergoing modernization to make sure that from preconception, if you will, that pregnant and postpartum mothers have access to healthy um, foods and just making sure that folks are aware of what's available to them and can access those, whether they're in person or virtual. And my understanding is that these programs of the Food and Nutrition Service has gotten much more sophisticated in the ways it can detect and prevent misuse of these funds. You know, the old classic stories of people buying cigarettes and beer with food stamps. That's way in the past pretty much now, isn't it? I would agree with that. Um, we have we are truly committed to making sure that our programs operate with integrity and we have really scaled up our operations through the regulatory process, but also the way that we do our management evaluations to make sure that the funds truly are reaching those that are most in need. And program operators, you know, the managers of the different channels within food and nutrition service, at one time they would go out to the field, you know, and see how things were operating in local stores and food banks and so forth. Does that still happen? It does still happen. So our retailer operations and compliance organization, they are responsible for ensuring that Our retailers have proper stock for our participants, but also making sure that they're operating with integrity. And even during the pandemic, when folks were not in close proximity, we continue to evaluate our programs virtually by having those conversations and using platforms such as Zoom and Teams to make sure that programs were still operating with integrity. And let's talk about you for a minute. You are a Presidential Rank Award winner, a member of the Senior Executive Service. They don't make it clear in the public announcement specifically why someone got that rank award. 
what did they tell you is the reason? Well, um, I've been at FNS since 2012, and throughout my tenure, I've held a number of positions, um, not the least of which included moving our headquarters office from a location that we'd been at for 30 years. When I took over the project, it was really behind over budget. I was able to not only get it back within budget, but also close the gap of the delay, which resulted in cost savings to the government. But also my work during the pandemic when there was lots of change that had to happen pretty rapidly given the pandemic and the nature of our programs. And so making sure that the organization was well positioned to continue to provide those critical nutrition assistance programs that individuals need even during a pandemic. We're speaking with Dr. Tamika Owens. She's Assistant Administrator of the Food and Nutrition Service at the Agriculture Department and a recent recipient of a Presidential Rank Award. Maybe detail a couple of the big changes that had to happen when people were afraid to go to stores or encounter one another in person and all of this. With our SNAP program, we had to quickly transition from folks being able to redeem their benefits at stores to being able to use online purchasing, but also for our school lunch program, typically folks are consuming those in the cafeteria. And when schools went to virtual, children still need access to that nutrition that they were getting. And as part of that, schools quickly had to pivot and we had to help them pivot, but also to operate within the regulatory confines. And so we quickly make those transitions. And with WIC, folks have a requirement to go in in person to be seen by um, states and the providers in the clinics. And we quickly transitioned to virtual ways so that individuals still had access to the nutrition that our programs provided. So those are some of the transitions, but we quickly scaled up what we were doing to make sure that folks still had access to nutritious food. Yeah, I recall that switch in SNAP for the online purchase authorization. Did that require simply a technological update or did you also have to have a regulatory change? So it's a combination of the two. And prior to the pandemic, we had some pilot authority, but obviously the pandemic sped things up quite a bit. And so we expanded that pilot. And as of this year, there there's millions of SNAP participants who are able to redeem their benefits, just like any other American is able to shop online and use their benefits in the same way. So There's some system changes, there's some regulatory changes, but there's also some behavior changes and just that knowledge and awareness that that is available to our participants. And tell us more about yourself. You said you've been at the Food and Nutrition Service for about a dozen years or so, but uh, your career is longer than that. It is. So I am an active duty spouse. My husband serves in the Army. And so we've moved around quite a bit. And the federal government has been very good to me in that I've been able to find positions that mesh with my skills. Um, I have been worked on at Fort Bliss Installation as a health promotion officer. I've worked at local health departments. That's actually my first entree into the world of WIC because at the health department, that was part of my portfolio. At Food and Nutrition Service, I've actually been in the research side of the house, but also our strategic planning part of the house. And I've served as its chief operating officer before taking on my current role. So even if your husband got transferred to Hawaii in the modern remote and telework era, you could still be a senior executive assistant administrator at a major program from far away, or could you? Well, it it depends, right? I mean, the nature of being a senior executive means that you are 
physically present most of the time, but there are definitely opportunities to leverage skills across the federal government in this new environment. Tell us more about the journey of a woman of color in reaching senior executive service, because that's been an issue, you know, the government has been grappling with for 30 or 40 years. I've been following it. Yes, it's been an interesting journey for myself. I've been a member of the senior executive service officially since 2019, and I was given the opportunity in 2018 to serve in in an active capacity, and I totally did not see that coming. And you point to being a woman of color, and it It was an interesting journey, and it has been one that I think at Food and Nutrition Service, I've been given the opportunity and the support of my colleagues has been tremendous. From the secretary all the way down, everyone's been very supportive and just very receptive to what I bring to the table as a woman of color and respecting that perspective. It sounds like you would recommend federal civil service then as a career? I would. Obviously, you're not in it for the money. You are in it because you have a passion for helping others. And I absolutely would recommend federal service, particularly the food and nutrition service. Sounds like you and your husband and the whole family kind of have a service-oriented view of the world. We absolutely do. It is something that we definitely instill in our two boys that service is our primary role on this earth. Dr. Tamika Owens is Assistant Administrator of the Food and Nutrition Service at the Agriculture Department and a recent recipient of a Presidential Rank Award. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Have a wonderful day. Tomorrow in our Rank Award series, Homeland Security Chief Information Security Officer Ken Bible will post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, 
I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we, uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, 
and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, 
I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You You have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.